Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about patterns of authority. Ooh. Well, <laughs> Jonathan, I just, I love where this idea came from. And so we had a shout out on LinkedIn from Tom Garfield, who's a regular listener. Thanks, Tom. And yeah, but what I loved about what he said is that he often listens to episodes more than once and has even listened to some as many as five times, which... I mean, talk about the pressure. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) pressure. But what was really interesting is as part of the interchange, um, he was asked, like, what was his favorite episode? And he said, the path to authority. And Hmm. I thought about it and I went to look at it to remind myself of what it was. And it was exactly 100 episodes from our last episode. I thought that Hmm. was a sign. And, um, And I thought in honor of Tom, what we would do is dive more deeply into this idea of authority. And in that particular episode, we really talked about the path from freelancer to expert to authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought we could do this time is really dial into the patterns of authority. Cool. Yeah. As we were getting ready for the show, uh, you know, we were both kind of comparing notes and uh, there's tons of overlap. There's, I think we've got a, different words for different things, but the ideas mm-hmm. are all similar. Like, uh, like patterns do emerge. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, it's, and it's kind of like, you know, carp, uh, you know, is it, is it the chicken or egg type of thing? You know, like, do these patterns exist first? And that's how you get sort of increase your level or break through the next level from wherever you're at. Or are they things that appear after you've done it? You know, I, mm-hmm. I think these are things that you need to start doing kind of like not fake it to make it, but kind of like kind of like uh, do the job you want kind of thing where yeah. you, you carve out. And it's hard because a lot of these things, well, I mean, probably none of the things that we list are, are what you would call billable activities. <laughs> so uh, so if you are kind of like renting your hands out by the hour to do tasks for your clients then it can be difficult to carve out time that feels unbillable. It feels like you're losing money. Yes. Like, why am I doing this? I could have made $300 instead of researching, you know, going down this rabbit hole, doing some research or rewriting my homepage or, you know, working on a book for three hours. You know, how how do you justify it to yourself when you're still in the hour, you know, the, the hourly treadmill? There needs to be at a certain point a leap of faith or a realization that, the only way you're going to get past that, get out of the hourly trap and break through that that sort of salary ceiling that comes with hourly billing is to carve out some of these, some time from your schedule to do like a long, something that's a longer term payoff. It's not going to pay off today, but you know, in six months, in 12 months, 18 months, you're, you're going to start to see some payoff. Yeah. So kind of, <laughs> kind of long-term thinking, but let's, I know we both have our own list. Why don't you start with, uh, you know, the top of your list we can kind of just discuss as we go down. Well, you know what, actually there's something that you said in, in before we hit record that I think it would be a good sort of level set. And you, you, you said kind of without even thinking, thinking, writing, speaking, publishing, you know, mm-hmm. that those are kind of the big activities of a of an authority. And I think maybe what we do is we is we dive into into some of those. Sure. And with the thinking, the thing that really strikes me is that authorities have a point of view. Yes. And the idea of a point of view is is that, you know, you have your expertise, 
you know, you've created a niche around that, you have your ideal client, but you have a point of view about how your expertise impacts your world, how you're going to get your big idea done, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going to get this transformation made? What has to exist for that to happen? And as you start, when you're a freelancer, you tend not to have a point of view. It's like, okay, give me some work. I'm going to do it. You know, your point of view is about how you're going to get the work done as quickly or as well as possible. But as you go along that path to authority, you start to go, hmm. You start to think about your area of expertise and and you start to craft this big idea. And eventually that point of view comes out and you start using that to talk about your craft, yes, but also to distinguish you, your services and your products from everybody else in the space. Mm, Yeah, that's another one of the things I I wrote down and sort of like I have these three or four spectrums, spectra, I don't know what it is. of sort of like beginner freelancer on the extreme left-hand side and like established authority on the extreme right-hand side. Mm -hmm. And certainly the positioning for a beginning freelancer coming out of the gate, there's nothing to distinguish them from all the other apples in the basket. So they're just one of many. Where on the other end, once you've gone through and really thoughtfully developed your own point of view or big idea or whatever it is, your vision your mission, then you become the one and only. So there's no, you're, you're like, your positioning is extremely strong. It probably, you know, in, a, in a, a very tiny, you're probably only famous to a very tiny number of people, maybe a thousand people or 10,000 or a hundred thousand people. Uh, but that's, that's a lot. That's a lot mm-hmm. to be, to be a, a big fish in a pond of even 10,000 people is, is really good is you can certainly build a business around it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, and then the other thing that you touched on there was one of the other spectrums from my list was that freelancers in general um, are told what to do. And authorities are not told what to do. They tell other people what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Or at least or maybe not. That, that's a weird way to put it, I suppose. They're not really telling people other. But but they're just not told what to do. It's like, look, here's here's the vision. You can sort of subscribe to it or not. If you do subscribe to it, then here's what you're going to want to do, you know. So, exactly. Right. I'd, I'd say in the middle, if we if we imagine the middle between freelancer and authority being expert or consultant or something like that, consultants are definitely paid to like tell people what to do. Oh, yes. It's one of the reasons I became a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So I feel like authority goes beyond that and they say, here's a world where you're going to want to behave in a different way because look how great it is. Yes. You're creating an alternative universe. Right. It's more of a leadership thing than an, 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 an authority, like I'm going to tell you what to do kind of authority. Yes. It's, um, you know, like managerial authority versus leadership kind of authority. And like, hey, hey, everybody, I'm going to get to the top of that mountain. Who wants to come with me? And yeah, so so being told what to do on the one hand, uh, not being told what to do on the other hand, let's put it like that. Um, and then another one, of course, is that freelancers are basically selling their hands where authorities are, are selling their brains. You know, it's all about mm-hmm. the intellectual property. It's what's going on in their head. It's not stuff they're doing, um, like like client work stuff they're doing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you want to um, drill into, like, say, thinking first? Well, I, I, I think I would tie that to kind of the point of view and then specializing, right? Mm-hmm. Because okay. um, we, we had a guest on the show who said something interesting before we taped and said, no, we could not attribute the comment 
<laughs> but but they they basically said you know we we came at them with this idea that everybody says oh specializing is so boring and they said boring i'll tell you what's not boring getting rich <laughs> <laughs> getting rich is not boring and we so wish we'd had the record button on when that was said. <laughs> um, but it, but it's even more than that, I think. And it's obviously you can make a lot of money specializing. But in addition to that, you really can go where your curiosity takes you. Because what happens when you start to specialize is it's like you can't unsee things all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So you 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 identify an ideal client, you figured out what your specialty is and you've applied a niche to that that specialty. So you have your people, you have your topic, you have how you work in your genius zone, and then you can go crazy with creativity. You can ask your ideal audience questions. Like you start to hear a problem and you go, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if there's a way to solve that problem. I wonder if anybody else has that problem. I wonder how big that problem is. So you've got really all sorts of avenues to explore your curiosity in a way that ultimately is also going to bring new people to you and build revenue for your business. Right. Yeah. It's about going deeper instead of going broader, if that's even a term, you know, going taking all of your energy and pointing it in the same direction instead of going one inch in every direction, like chasing the next sugar high of like, ooh, now I want to work with a plastics manufacturer. Now I'm going to work with a, an animal shelter. Now I'm going to work with a university. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're completely horizontal and you're not niched down in any kind of target market. Um, and it's, but it's fun to learn new, you know, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. For, it's fun for the first like month, maybe. Well, that's a freelancer mentality, and I will tell you that usually dies with by the second year. By the end of the second year, that doesn't work anymore for yeah. most people. Right. It's a short learning curve, and going up these short learning curves generally gets pretty boring. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that keeps them interested, and this maybe a little tangent, I think the thing that keeps people interested, it certainly w- worked for me, kept me interested early on when I was jumping from any random client to any other random client, was that I was still learning my craft, so that was fun. So I was on a, a an extended learning curve around my craft, and so, so these other little learning curves were interesting. But um, I didn't. Um, I was sustained by the longer arc of learning whatever the craft was at whatever point in my career. But then once that S curve kind of mm. topped out, and I wasn't really learning that much more about my craft than the sugar high of like a new client industry or new kind of client. It was just like, it just felt like I was wasting time instead of creating yeah. leverage or something. You're kind of like, really? I've got to do one of those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I have to learn another new industry just to be able to, to do my craft. Right. Yeah. Right. So in general, my experience is that being a consultant or an authority and really knowing your stuff, but also going really deep into a space it really adds value for the client. It, it, like when I was in the cruise space, I was, I was helping uh, a photography company that worked on cruise ships and they had like basically no internet. They were sharing a 3G connection over for 7,000 people. And that Ooh. created all kinds of really interesting problems that pretty much only in the, in the first world pretty much only exist on cruise ships. So mm. it was a real challenge and, and I had to get my, it took me months to, to, to be like, oh, we can't just, <laughs> we can't just call the <laughs> server for an update. You know, there were some really hard constraints that were super fun to think about, but just as one example, someone, someone who comes in and just like, oh, I'm smart. I can figure it out. <laughs> Good luck. 
You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, I had, when I first was in LA and I was meeting people and explaining what I did, I would get these referrals. And they, a lot of times they were, there are a lot of food companies in LA, not restaurants, but some kind of food creators and distributors. Mm-hmm. And I kept getting these referrals because they knew I liked to eat. <laughs> you know, I love food. <laughs> And I was like, no, there are so many things I don't know about that business and branding for everyday consumers. No, there's like a million people that are going to be better at that than me. Mm. So, but what we're talking about here is this sort of thinking thing. So specializing your own area of expertise, but also uh, niching into some kind of segment of the market, some some market. Mm-hmm. It, and yeah. We've talked about you know, million ways to segment, you know, five, six different ways to segment. There's lots of ways to do it. But it's one of those things that uh, I would say authorities is very common for authorities to do some combination of those two things, you know, uh, the intersection of like a specialty with a niche. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's just one that's that's really just one aspect of thinking. I mean, if you're going to, you need to carve out some real time, uninterrupted time, or build it into your routine somewhere, you know, whatever it is. When you're walking the dog, you're going to think big thoughts. You're going to you're going to mm-hmm. notice when something uh, comes over the transom that's different. You're going to say, "Whoa, that's an exception to my previously ironclad framework." Or here's a deeper level problem. I'm noticing, you know, in in these points of my current methodology or my current thinking or my my worldview or my big idea, the worldview of my big idea. I'm noticing that there's this. I'm getting this same pushback from different people at different points of the process let's say and you're like huh let's start poking at that because it seems like there's some underlying more fundamental thing like imposter syndrome or people's personal relationship with money or something that's like Mm -hmm. deeper a deeper level thing um, where you've got these you know higher level things that you're thinking about you know like let's just say positioning you know something i work with people we both work with people about on their positioning and you can get all these like all this weird these symptoms, this sort of like c- coughing back at you when you try and help someone with it. It's like, why are you why are you resisting this? And you get all of these you can get all these different kind of explanations or excuses or or whatever. And then you're like, what is the underlying thing here? We're hitting a rough patch here. I keep hitting a rough patch when I'm trying to do positioning with certain people. What's underneath this? And you spend time researching it. You know, you you mm-hmm. you try and do it with them consultatively and get into what's really the the holdup here. Um, that might lead you to a, a new subject that previously didn't seem related, but now you need to read like you know the top three books on I don't know um, mindset or leadership or imposter syndrome or. Uh, personal finance, like something that you wouldn't normally think about, but all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. Or risk or strategy or like these things that don't normally, wouldn't normally come up so that you can get people through this rough patch at this higher level area that you're thinking. Well, I think the reverse is also true, which is if you, as a, as a matter of habit, read some of those different kinds of of books on different things, you may have, I have it all the time, I'll get an aha moment from something completely different that strikes me for my audience. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you're having trouble thinking big thoughts, because sometimes people will say, oh, you know, I just I love the work. I don't really want to think about that. If you just start reading some of the interesting books, and they don't even have to be business books. You can pick and choose around different topics. Like I'm reading a book right now called TED Talks, on uh, written by the head of TED, on how to structure TED Talks. It is fascinating and it's given me a couple of insights that I just you know hadn't really thought about in exactly that way Mm -hmm. and so if you're if you're looking for ways to prime the pump read yeah so it's you you just described you said oh it doesn't even have to be business book business books I'm reading two books right now one one I would call a business book I guess it's really self-help uh, but it's nonfiction. I'm also reading a fiction book. And the, mm-hmm. the nonfiction book is Your Money or Your Life, which I think you recommended. Oh, yeah, I did. I love that book. Yeah, because of the Gazingas bits. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and yes, I, I've, you know, per chapter, I have at least one like, oh, that's a great way to put that. Or, oh, that's that same problem yeah. I see with people. Yeah. And, and it's just like, wow. And, you know, and when a book's been a bestseller for like a bajillion years, you know, it's doing something right. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not hard to find books like this. So they're just classics. Yeah. It, yeah. It depends on the book. And it's to me, that's the beauty of books is you never know um, when you're going to find some. And I've read a couple by first time authors that I thought were like, oh, these are going to be. Ugh. But mm. they had some, they had one or two great ideas in it. And a lot of times they're really fast reads because first time authors tend to do, you know, shorter um, not always crisper, but in this case, <laughs> they were. This particular book I'm thinking of was was short. It was crisp. It was very accessible, and there were some good ideas in it. Yeah, and if I get one great idea out of a book, poof, that's worth the yeah. worth the money and the time. Exactly. And then to your other point about about non business books, I'm also reading Guards Guards by Terry Pratchett, which uh, I guess is from the Discworld series. I'm totally new to this. Somebody on Twitter recommended. I absolutely love it, and. It's it's like if Douglas Adams wrote a mashup of like Life of Brian and Young Frankenstein. It's Ooh. hilarious. <laughs> and here and I was going to ask you if it was fantasy fiction. It's fantasy. It is fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Okay. And uh, you know it's like magic and dragons and stuff, and and it is a riot. And so, from, but from a business context, one of the things that the author does, he's he's I think it's a he um, is. An absolute master of metaphors, which are which I love metaphors, mm, just yeah. love it. So I've been highlighting the thing to death, which I never do in a fiction book, <laughs> but I've been highlighting all of these unbelievable metaphors. They just hit you like a ton of bricks, mm. and he's just great, 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 great. So yeah, so you can get inspiration from anything, but reading, I think it's a pretty common advice that you know reading is amazing for your business, for you know this kind of a business, but. You know, maybe teasing it out a little bit and, and kind of giving these examples would help convince someone to devote, you know, actually start going through that pile of 15 books next to your chair, you know? Yeah. And, and part of this is is finding a habit that works for you. Like for me, reading is what I do when I'm at the gym. And mm-hmm. I do it otherwise, but if my day is action-packed, I know I'm going to get a minimum of 45 minutes on the elliptical machine with my book of choice. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I'm reading it on the Kindle, I can highlight as I go, so I've got notes. Love it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. and there's something again for me. Everybody's different. There's something about physically moving my body and exhausting myself while I'm feeding my mind at the same time. I yeah. don't know why, but I, I I get off that machine and I feel like I could do 
anything mm-hmm. after reading the right book. So I do. I line the books up because I always want to have the right book to read when <laughs> when I'm on the machines. Yeah, that that's uh, another thing. While we're talking about thinking, uh, I, I this is 100 percent true for me, and I've heard it from other people. Uh, my I guess my I want to, I don't want to say best thoughts, but like like when I get big ideas, it's usually when I'm doing the dishes or vacuuming or doing some kind something with my hands and probably standing or walking and mm. and and my brain is is it could it could just be that the kids don't interrupt me when I'm washing the dishes or vacuuming or in the garage, <laughs> you know. It could it could just be that. But regardless when uh you know the those my brain just like goes crazy you know and i'm just, I'll just yeah. like jump from thing to thing and i think normally it would just be monkey mind you know just pinging from from useless thought to useless thought or like what am i going to do today or i have to add this to the shopping list or something like that mm-hmm. but since i've got a daily deadline to publish something on a particular subject or at least in a cert- certain content solar system for a bunch of people who are waiting for it my brain will gravitate to what I would consider to, to that, which I would consider more useful way to use my brain than like thinking about oh, what should I wear tomorrow or, um, you know, what do I want to have for dinner? So having that kind of always on deadline yes. to write and publish when I'm in, in that kind of mode where my brain is just doing that like freewheeling gymnastic cartwheel, like just goes everywhere. I've got a little bit of a, goal for it so it it focuses into something that's going to produce hopefully meaningful output for myself and a large group of people well let's talk some more about that because i had that on my list as sharing right yeah, so pub- um, I publishing to me is yeah, kind of the same thing yeah publishing and pollinating right so so the first part is publishing in whatever form that looks like i mean it could be a podcast could be it Instagram video, it could be um, an actual, you know, written piece. But this idea of of publishing wraps uh, wraps some requirements around your thinking. It's like you have to when you when you have a deadline, even if it's self imposed, you've got to find something to write about, mm-hmm. and something that not everyone is going to be, you know, the Nobel Prize winning piece. But it, at least you are advancing your thinking for your audience. And that's why publishing is such a clear mark of an authority. Oh, we, yeah. We have to publish. It's There's no Author. other way to get your... Yeah. <laughs> it's and, right in and there. <laughs> yeah. And publishing is also sharing. And that's really what we're talking about. And publishing isn't just doing those big things, but it's also, in many cases, it's the smaller things, like the social media post where you, you know, you just have a thought and it's a tweet, it's a sentence, Mm -hmm. you know, it's 140 characters, boom, you're done. That is publishing. Now, if you just do that, unless you're a comedian, you're probably not going to make bank on that. But it helps to get your audience thinking and it puts your authentic, not only your authentic beliefs out there, but some of your personality and your style and the way you think. It's very personal. Yeah. Yeah, I find uh, sometimes... Uh, like I don't hang out on Twitter anymore. I used to be a big Twitter user, uh, but when I do have a sort of spontaneous thought like that, like something really experimental, not thoroughly thought through, uh, it's it sounds it's, like Twitter. Yeah, right, right. And <laughs> right. I'm just like that. I feel like that's a big idea, 
and then you just put it on Twitter and you'll find out immediately if every, you know, if, if like yeah. you're totally wrong or if it's already someone else's idea and there's like, you know, it's very well known and you can then, then you can just go research it mm-hmm. um, or you could or people might just like, huh, retweet it and, and, and like it and stuff. And you're like, all right, maybe there's something here. Um, I don't really think about it that kind of opportunist opportunistically. I just have this like like I have a tweet. It's not an article. It's not a it's not a. It's not a daily email. It's a tweet, you know, it's like a Confucius style quote. And I'll just, I'll just like puke it out there, see what happens. And sometimes a a really interesting conversation will stem from it and it, and I can't get it out of my head or it keeps coming back. Just, it just keeps popping back into my head. And when that happens, then I'll take it and flesh it out into, you know, a few hundred words of an email. And maybe that's a new Maybe that's a new area. Maybe that's a new planet in my content solar system, or at least a moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, but anyway, sharing it. The point is sharing it, publishing it, putting your. You don't have to publish everything. Like you don't have to work a hundred percent public. I don't. I don't think it's good or bad to do that. Um, but the thinking thing, and because think some people think on paper, you know, so so they they are writing, but they're not publishing. And to me, that's a critical distinction yeah. yeah so it's yeah, fine if you realize you're just thinking on paper but but i i would be a little bit i'd be like i don't know if that i would call that writing that's not what i mean when i'm talking about writing when i talk about writing it's like for people not it's just publishing me. yeah mm-hmm. and it's i think sometimes people think publishing is like a book or an academic paper i mean we're talking you know publishing can have a very small p in it yeah right there it, it's anything from it's like anything anything from the tweet to you know a, a blog post or an article it's the, the yeah, key is Instagram to carousel. share it mm-hmm. yeah because until you put it out there it doesn't exist and the thing that drives people the craziest is they've sat on an idea for a year or two and they never talked about it and somebody else comes out with it oh yeah that hurts Oh yeah, and and a lot of times that's the that's what gives somebody the impetus to go. All right, I'm going to go public now, and I'm going to I'm going to start start publishing. But the other thing I want to mention, which I've really learned in the last week or so, it's really hit home for me, is for some of us, talking out loud is really helpful in terms of coalescing our thinking. Like this podcast has mm-hmm. done a lot. The, the fact that you and I can talk about anything and get these two different points of view. I've developed different uh, different thoughts on some of my my core areas through the art of talking about it mm. and having to defend something or thinking I should defend it and then going, no, I don't think I want to defend that. <laughs> so there's also the, the talking. And I know coming from, you know, a, a long line of, of consultants that I've worked with over the years is a lot of a lot of us need to kind of socialize things with other people to really get at all the things in the dusty corners of our brains. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. That might have been a missing bullet from my initial list is that is I mean if we're talking about patterns of authority, I, I haven't I haven't thought this through very much, but I think you're onto something there. It's actually happening right now, kind of meta, right? <laughs> you know, we're, we're having a conversation, you've injected this new consideration and it does I'm just quickly trying to think of examples i can't think of any maybe isaac asimov but i I wouldn't put him as an authority or like like certain writers but no not i can't think of an example of someone who just locks himself in a closet and produces 
sort of business nonfiction ideas without some kind of conversational interaction with either trusted colleagues or peers or um, super fans or like members of the early adopter audience. It feels like I can't think of a single example. Think of a big name. Now, we both could probably think privately of people that have done that. I've worked with people that came to me with a book that, you know, had 200 people that bought it. Mm. And so they feel that. And part of the reason sometimes, actually often, is because there wasn't this socializing of the idea. It was, mm. well, I'm working by day and at night I'm working on, you know, my my opus. Right. And, <laughs> right. right? and then you come out and it's crickets and you wonder why. Well, because you haven't socialized the ideas yet. And the ideas might have been better if you'd so- socialized them or they might be exactly the same. But now you have an audience of people that are interested in it. Right. And they're going to buy and more importantly, read the book mm-hmm. and kind mm-hmm. of keep that conversation going. Right. Yep. You've, you've kind of like they've dipped their toe in the idea without having to commit to like the overall thing. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a perfect parallel in the software space where where a, a really good software developer who knows how to do all the things spends, I don't know, 200, 600 2,000 hours building a SaaS product that they're so sure everyone's going to want and then they launch to crickets and it's like Mm. you know it's such a it's so frustrating it's like such a waste I've done it it's you know it's painful you're like you know but but you said uh, if I built it they would come like (laughs) no that that movie has dream in the title so that's not real Uh, anyway so I love this I love this sort of fifth bullet here of socializing the idea like I use when I talk about because I do talk about this. It didn't occur to me when we were starting this episode, though, um, is having like optimizing for conversations. I think I got that line from Kai Davis, but optimizing for conversation, which is kind of what I'm doing when I when I do those tweets I was talking about before. It's like, hey, is this is this a novel idea? Is this or even if it's not a novel idea, is this a novel way to say it that would be encourage someone to take action and not just be like, oh, deep, man. You know, <laughs> right, right. So it starts a conversation like that's that's exactly what I was talking about when when a, a thread, a conversation thread sort of uh, grows off of one of these tweets. And then I'm like, oh, maybe this there's more to this. Let me look at these different angles that people brought up that, that are good, like good input and coalesce it into a more uh, or, or pull it into a more cohesive, clear thought. So then when I do write an email about it, I can kind of, ex- it's almost like behind the scenes of the tweet. It's like explain the tweet in a way that's meaningful. Well, I think mm, that also cool. piggybacks on this idea of pollinating. So mm-hmm. part of what you just described is pollinate, pollinating, but let's say you, you publish that article and then somebody says something about it, somebody in your audience, and that somebody in your audience has their own audience. And so you, you call them. You actually mm-hmm. talk to them on the phone and you talk about this idea and the two of you take it to a different place. That's pollinating. That's mm. and you, it doesn't always have to be talking on the phone, <clears throat> but it's this idea that you find like minded people and the idea may morph. It may not look exactly the same when it gets into the hands of the second person or the third person or the fourth person, but you're pollinating or you know socializing that the idea in addition to doing it in a big picture way with publishing it you're doing some one-to-one or you might be doing some one-to-many for example if you come on as a podcast guest then Mm -hmm. you you're you're talking with one person but to an audience of many 
Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I like this. Um, what Look at about us inventing new stuff as we go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, to give credit where credits due, it was on your list. It <laughs> just wasn't on mine. Um, so what about? So, so we've talked. I did separate out of my list writing from publishing. Mm-hmm. So because I do think there's a kind of writing and it, I, I when I put this on the page I was thinking like serious writing book length writing mm-hmm. but the publishing thing this, there's obviously a lot of overlap like you need to have something to publish and it could be videos it might doesn't need to be the written word but I do think if you're you know going to be down going down this author path you need to be writing a lot yes yeah even if you're not publishing it as soon as you wrote it like a journalist would have to do like a newspaper journalist on a daily deadline or like my my daily mailing list i consider that writing and publishing but but this particular bullet point was for book length thoughts and ideas so maybe it's not a book but it'd be book length so maybe you create a framework and initially you you turn it into a bunch of slides and videos as you're working through the idea but you it's all like stuff it's a lot of words that you created, you know, and uh, I think that that exercise, I, it's definitely different. It's different for me from writing a daily list because it requires more structure and and um, it really needs to have, it, it's much bigger picture. So like individual little, little it's like writing magazine articles. Yes, it's I, not I used, a single anecdote. Right. I did. I did. I used to write a monthly column for magazines. So before before I wrote my first book, I was writing a monthly column for a magazine. It was about 1500 words. And when a book deal came along because I was writing the column, I, I think, or maybe I was asked to co-author. Yeah, that's what it was. So I was asked to co-author a book. You know, you do these chapters, I'll do those chapters. Okay, great. I wrote my, I was like, wow, this is, I figured each chapter would kind of be like writing a long um magazine article in for the column mm-hmm. and and so that's how I approached it and that did not work I ended up <laughs> rewriting like two or three chapters six times and then we just we just like broke the contract <laughs> like, this is not this book is not going to work um, I was like wow this is very different you really really have to know your stuff like it's it's easy to kind of you know hit a double with a daily mailing list that's for a particular kind of person about a particular subject it's not that hard um, it takes a much more structured order organized thoughts like in, for a book to hold together it really needs to be thought out with an arc and a structure and mm-hmm. it forces you to what is the word i'm searching for here it's like it forces you it's not testing your ideas it's like codifying your ideas or like fitting them all it's like putting a puzzle together almost it's like a it's like if you think about putting your point of view together Mm -hmm. it's like a much more detailed examination of that point of view where you have your language you have certain words mean certain things and some people do that as they write a book but boy that's the hard way yeah i agree Uh uh-huh i can't do that actually i just go down Uh, tangents and rabbit holes and, and it gets out of proportion and but there's also something in between those two that you described. And, and the example I was thinking of is James Clare before he does what he does now, which is like little short snippets. But he used to write these big, long pieces. Remember mm-hmm. those? Yeah. Twice and 
I, I believe, and I think he's talked about this um, on air somewhere, um, I believe that, you know, as he would write those, and it would take him a few days to, to write one of those, and he would distribute them on sort of an ad hoc basis. But that's what allowed him to write the book, is he was able to develop his content and his thinking so that he had... Uh, some pillars, if you will, when yep. he was ready to write a book, he knew what he wanted to write about. He had to do more work to write the book, but he'd created this this habit and this structure to be able to then go to the book. Mm -hmm. He also mentioned, and this is related, when we interviewed him, that um, that he had a real hard time writing the book at first because he wasn't getting any feedback on it the way he does with his mailing list. That's right. And he had to get an editor just so as he was writing, he knew who was going to be reading. Like he knew someone was going to mm -hmm. read it. He couldn't, he couldn't like write it without an audience in mind. And he was just sort of, he was kind of in a bubble and getting like writer's block and going in circles and stuff. Uh, real, real tooth pulling um, uh, activity. And then he got a writer, I'm sorry, an editor. And he was like, oh, this is much better. Yeah. Uh, it started to flow more. So yeah, a hundred percent. I think that, I think the, that kind of, atomic publishing of these sort of like individual ideas and single point messages and and you know something longer than a tweet but shorter than than like a uh, an article like a big article that's super good for developing like your your thinking on a particular idea and building an audience of people who are interested in in that kind of thing but for real authority i still think like gold standard is like a great book and it's yeah. and what does that mean it's probably at least 100 pages better be at least 100 pages if you want to call it a book it's probably traditional public like a gold standard it's probably a traditional publisher 150 pages or longer and and it's just really thought through it's a big it's, idea book uh, it's a really big idea yeah and yeah. it's just and it's it holds together it's like durable you know, mm -hmm. every little point is completely thought through to the, you know, to the extent that it's humanly possible. You know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because, you know, I've gone public with this, that I'm working on a book and um, I've been writing every day. The plan is every day for 30 days. And yesterday I was writing a piece, a, a, a part of a chapter and I'm like... I feel like I have an example of this, but I can't remember what it is. And I literally went to my website, got on my blog, searched the two keywords. I found the article and I'm like, oh my God, that's it. That's how I want to say this. And I mean, it's just, it's funny, but you you may not realize it when you're writing it. I think that piece was five or six years old. You may not realize when you're writing it, but it becomes part of what builds you know, your point of view, your body of work, and can be really helpful when you're trying to write a longer form piece later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in this context, I mean, writing is like this sort of cohesive, coherent, long form, um, crucible almost that you go through to bake your idea into yes. something that's, that's your big picture idea into something that's got an artifact and can be shared and, you know, mm -hmm. outlive you even. Well, and especially, you know, I know we've talked about this so often, but podcasting is such a long tail. I mean, look at um, what we mentioned with, with Tom Garfield. This was an episode. It was 100 episodes ago. Yeah, it's like two years ago, right? Yeah. And and for for one member of our audience, that that struck a chord that he didn't mm -hmm. forget. And the same will be true for you with your audience as you as you build your ideas. Now, not everyone is going to hit a, 
every post, every piece, every episode is going to hit with everybody. But over time, you're going to keep building. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so let's let's talk about. I've got two other ideas, but I think they're they're interrelated mm-hmm. in terms of big picture. When we talk about the patterns of of authority. I mean, one is that you really are able to position yourself in white space and you can build that out. You know, a freelancer is never the only person that does X, right? right. The reason they can be a freelancer is because there's an established market for that. Mm-hmm. Authorities, absolute opposite end of the spectrum, and you don't sound like anybody else. And that does take a while. I don't want to make it sound like you just wave a magic wand and poof, poof, you get it. Sometimes it does work that way. Um, But more often than not, it's kind of a steady progression of fits and or fits and starts to get to that point where you found that white space, that mountain that you're going to claim and nobody else is there. Mm -hmm. That's what you need ultimately to really build authority. Yeah, and if you think of any big names, really, they you know what that is for them. Mm-hmm. You know, Simon Sinek, start with why. <laughs> yeah. You know, like whoever, just name anybody. And it's like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, I'd say tipping point, even though he's one of those, like Dan Pankey's one of those sort of journalistic kind of writers where they, they'll just get interested in a new topic and do a new one. But for me, Gladwell it's is science, though. He's a science writer. So I, I feel like it's science for, for non-scientists. Science for non-scientists. Yeah. yeah well, s- scientists don't like him. Yeah. They, they feel that he makes things too easy. I love him because I can understand what he's talking yeah, about. I'm so, not reading white papers from scientific yeah, American. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's, that's actually a really great example of a strong brand because you're repelling the wrong people as much as you're attracting the right people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you said, that stuff takes time and it doesn't just like occur to you. It, for me, any, anything that where I've ever come close to anything like that is, is it happens when people are reflecting my idea back to me in the way that they heard it. If yes. You know what I mean. Yes. That's the socializing process. Yeah. So it, it, it comes back in a way that's just like, oh, that's a great way to put that. <laughs> like that's a yeah. more straightforward, <laughs> simple, still accurate, um, more conversational which, I mean, maybe, I mean, do we, is this segue into speaking? I mean, we've mentioned podcasts. Well, where I was, where I was going to go with this is, is business model. But I think that's where speaking fits in. Because I think that when you think about authority, you've got a lot more flexibility with your business model. Right. And I'm not even talking about how much money you make, because that's kind of obvious that you can make a lot more money as an authority than as a freelancer. But you've got all this flexibility. Yeah, right? Totally. You, you've, you have different ways to create leverage. You can work inside your genius zone. If you're really a writer and a speaker, you can design something around that. If you want to work half the time um, and you're in demand, you create leveraged products or services where you don't work that much. You might come out with one big thing a year. And that's your big thing. If you've got the right audience, maybe you're podcasting or blogging to keep them interested and you come up with one thing a year, you can work part time and make a lot of money. Um, But it's the flexibility that I think is really important here. Yes, the money, the money's obvious, but the flexibility, I think, is a point that gets lost, especially I always think of graphic designers who are freelancing with agencies. Oh, my God. Do they get used and abused? 
Yeah. It's, you know, a project suddenly changes. Oh, sorry, we don't need you anymore. Bye. No notice. Right. And it's really frustrating. So imagine someone like that being able to say, wow, I could call my own shots. I could work the way I want to. I can make a lot more money than I can freelancing with agencies and have a lot more consistency um, with my revenue. And I can actually build a sustainable business. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole topic. I mean, I think in the, in the traditional definition of freelancer, maybe not Seth Godin's definition, but in the traditional definition, you're probably renting your hands out by the hour to execute some skill that you probably learned at a job and, you know, maybe on your own, but it's pretty, you probably got sick of some job where you're doing Photoshop or photography or coding and you're like, forget this. I'm going to take the bus to shove this job and I'm going to go solo and and they they just rebuild the job with it, yeah. which is no boss. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, of course, because that's what they know. They don't, they didn't, they generally don't think, what business model should I choose? Mm-mm. The first no. thought is, what should my hourly rate be? And you look around, you go on Upwork, you, you find out some, you know, you find out some other people, what they're charging and you sort of like, based on your ego, you adjust up or down and yeah, and there's never there's never this concept. It doesn't feel like like I'm starting a business. It's like oh, I'm going to start freelancing. What should my hourly rate be? Instead of like I'm going to start yes. a business. What should the business model be? And it's like all right, when you have it, not that you could just say I'm going to have an authority business model and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to sell books and I'm going to make a lot of money doing speaking engagements and occasionally I'll do consulting like your parachute consulting guys. And, you know, I don't, you can't just start off doing that, but you could certainly start off with that plan. And, and once you get there and you build the, you build the authority, then it's like, you can, you can be like almost as idiosyncratic as you want. You know what I mean? Cause you're you're the one and only part, especially if you're at all creative, you can indulge that when it Mm -hmm. serves your, your audience Yeah, and they love you for it. Instead of getting dinged for it, they love you for it. Right. Yeah, and again, you can just look at. There's a million examples. There's so many, so many more these days that you can point to. People who have like millions of followers, like clear authorities in a particular space, who are just super. I don't. I don't even know anymore what the 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 definition would be. Like what the expectation would be of a of like a, like what do you expect like a, of an authority to show up in like a, you know business casual and like or maybe like a, even a little dressier than that to like speak at a sales conference i can't even i can't even picture that anymore but i imagine that there's people who are still kind of thinking they need to conform to some kind of vision of trustworthiness i mean i even know people in the cpa space that are just like that do not conform to that like white button down shirt thing mm-hmm. and you know, they just, I mean, let their freak flag fly is probably an exaggeration. But when you do have all of this IP and you've got all this leverage and people, you know, you are a recognized authority, you are the one and only for a particular thing, you can wear slippers. <laughs> you know yeah, mean? that's you can, the beauty of you it. You can work from a beach. You can um, work only late at night and hang out all day with your kids. You could do pretty much whatever you want. Uh, there's just so much flexibility compared to back, you know, like back when I was doing client work, especially by the hour. But even when I was doing just client work, like my, my whole business model was, uh, I wrote code, you know, I, I changed mm-hmm. the way that I, 
I charged for it when I went solo into you know value pricing instead of hourly, but it didn't change the fact that um, I, I was doing a lot of client work. So even even though my time had been separated from my money and I didn't have to work as much to make way more, it still was dominated by client work. I wasn't spending yeah. time um, thinking big thoughts about the future of the industry. Uh, I wasn't. I was just like getting better at the software that I was using to solve problems for my clients and then giving them a price for it and executing it as fast and well as I could to maximize my profit. But it's it still, I was working like, you know, 20, 30 hours a week, probably. I don't really remember, but I was working like normal job hours, I would say. Um, but then once once that shifted and I truly, truly got into consulting and not development, which is really where I started, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was my activities changed my my um, exposure to the client was dramatically decreased you know it was kind of like they would call or email occasionally maybe I'd have a weekly 30 minute meeting or something um, and so it just it just gives you so much flexibility it was still client work though I wasn't I wasn't right. really building anything I didn't have products I didn't have um, anything uh, I didn't have any repeatable systems really. There, you know, like to to the point of our last episode, there was no way for me to exit it. There was nothing to sell. It was, you know, just me having been keeping up to date. Um, so once you start to move past, I would say once you move past that kind of expert level, even even if your thing is giving advice and it's very high profitability and, and low time commitment, once you've built up some books or some courses or you've packaged up your expertise in these ways that can sell while you're sleeping that helps you that helps actually build your authority because it can go beyond what you would be capable of doing on a one-to-one basis so it can spread more and there's just the the, yeah I, i can't say enough about this is a great point i can't say enough about how much flexibility there is you can change stuff like crazy to accommodate, you know, oh, your kids are going to college. All right, let's, let's, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing in a van across, you know, driving across the country because now the kids aren't home or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's where it's at, you know, when, and it's, it's, that's why it's such a continuum because you start out as a freelancer and you're just so happy. You're learning your craft. You don't have a day to day boss. Uh, you know, you still have responsibilities, but, you know, you can see how it works. And then as you start to develop your business, you go, oh, well, gee, this is pretty interesting. So I can make money in different ways. And then ultimately, after you've been doing it for a while, you get to the point where you say, okay, either it's because you're on the hamster wheel, right? And you're like, oh my God, I, I'm billing, 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 billing. When am I supposed to breathe? When am I supposed to take a vacation? You know, and you're you're afraid to say no to the next job because you worry there won't be another one. And then you get to that point where the flexibility is important. And it flexibility for different things. It can be raising your family. It can be uh, doing traveling opera singing. It can be, uh, you know, weekend gigging with your rock band, whatever those things are. It's, 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 that's the beauty of it. And the sidebar is that also makes you more interesting as an authority. It just does. It does. It doesn't contribute directly, probably to your output, but it does make you more interesting and more memorable. Yeah, you're more of a character. Yeah, yeah, character sells as long as you've got the goods. I mean, you've got to, you know, you actually have to be able to back it up, not just tell a good story. Yeah, you can't skip the expert phase. Uh, no, <laughs> no. Cool. Okay, what do, what have we missed? Did we did we skip anything? We didn't talk much about speaking. 
Um, but I think that it kind of fits into this this mode of another way to get your your IP out there. And I, I do want to make a point because I've run into a number of people who really don't enjoy writing, mm-hmm. and like at all. And so I've encouraged them to use because usually the people who don't like that are really good at speaking. And I don't necessarily mean speaking in front of a crowd. It might be hosting a podcast where they're doing interviews. Um, But I say look for things that will use the assets that you bring to the table. Still write, but maybe what you do is after you do a video uh, teaching class of some sort, you write something about what that is because people in our audiences tend to learn in different ways. Some of us want to read, some of us want to listen, and some of us want to watch. And so if you can take even the same piece of content and create more than one way to consume it, it's not that much work. You've already developed the idea and you've made it simple. So so I just would I, I would just say don't ignore the speaking aspect of all of this, even if you don't think it's your forte. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've got one student who's who gets all wrapped around the axle when he sits down to write, but can just talk into a camera, no problem. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I don't like, dude, you are lucky. So he can just rattle off a really good, you know, kind of like ask me anything kind of thing. And he gets these questions and, and just says, Hey, here's, you know, this person asked like, here's, here's what I think about it. And just rattles it off. He keeps them short, like, you know, around five minutes or whatever. And he's got this video first workflow early last time I talked to him, he was doing this. He'd doing this video first workflow where he would do that and then he'd strip the audio off and and have that for like a podcast type of thing mm-hmm. and then get it transcribed and then that's like uh, the email for the email list yep. with and a link to the video in case somebody wants to like watch or and to the audio in case somebody wants to watch or listen to it instead so you know yeah if you can do that and you know words are words if you are really really struggle with writing and just get lost in your own head then it can it can be easy yeah like you said it could be easier like the student it could be easier for you to just just talk off the cuff if you're if you're if your thinking is really organized and you know what you're talking about and can do it it's a really efficient way to produce a lot of words mm-hmm. quickly i mean we we do something like i think it's like 10,000 words per episode between the two of us so like you know an hour's worth of conversations like 10,000 words and I think of how long it would take me to write 10,000 coherent words. I don't know yeah. if all our words are coherent on the podcast. No, but. definitely not. It's mostly, <laughs> you know, and so um. anyway, what was I saying? Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. I do think, I do think that writing, you, you will never regret any investment you put into getting better at writing, speaking, particularly public speaking. Uh, and, and then a third one, it doesn't really, I don't know if it's really relevant to this episode, but negotiating. So I, I think those three skills, if you run a business, especially an authority business or a solo business or a small business and you're the leader, those three things, any practice yeah. you can get at those three things, you're going to take it. You're not going to regret it. Yeah. Those are those are evergreen business skills. Absolutely. Cool. Ooh. Okay. Um, so I guess to wrap up, I'll sort of wrap up where we started where, you know, this, these things that we're listing, they take time. They're fun, super fun, but they do take a lot of time. And if you're, you know, more on the freelancer end of the spectrum and you're still selling time for money, it can be a, a, a tough pill to swallow to say, like, I'm really going to take five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours this week, not billable to work on a book. 
that sounds insane. It sounds like it feels to mm-hmm. them like they're they're spending two thousand dollars this week to write a book, and it's going to take me six months. I'd rather have the whatever that works out to. I'd rather have the hundred thousand right. dollars. Right. And it's like, yeah, I get that. I was I was there. I used to have the same thoughts when I'd be on vacation, like I'm losing two hundred dollars an hour or whatever, you know. But if you, but that that's a symptom of hourly billing, and it's it's a it's the step that everybody has to get over when they start there. You just eventually have to get over that. Uh, well, well remember, you don't have to jump to a book. You can start. You don't with have to jump to a book, something right. a lot smaller, which is usually what people do, because that's how you're developing your ideas and you're developing your audience. Because if you were mm. to write a book while you're still a freelancer, you might get lucky, but sure. it might it might launch to crickets, and that's right. not going to make you feel good about that. You know, twenty mm-hmm. or fifty thousand dollar investment of your time. Right. So do something simple. Do do yeah. a weekly podcast with a guest because if you not with a guest, well, a guest or a host, a uh, co-host, um, if you do either one of those things, then it's, you will have a standing appointment with somebody else that you're not going to mm-hmm. want to cancel or reschedule. You won't blow it off and it will have this regular cadence and maybe it takes you an hour or two a week. Like that's a I think that's a good way to start to do these kind of unbillable activities to uh, kind of kickstart your big thinking you know and you know obviously you'd want the podcast to be for a particular audience about a particular thing that's in your area of expertise and not just like you know you shoot in the breeze with your brother or something but oh that could be funny too <laughs> maybe if you've not got for that, authority not for authority yeah unless you're you know want to be jerry seinfeld or someone but uh, anyway um that's you're right like starting with a book is almost surely a mistake um but but some kind of commitment to regularly have something that is going to touch on these five things that we've listed. I think it's five, where you're you're you need to think about it. You're going to be um, you're going to be talking about this idea. You have to like you, you're having conversation with someone else who's also smart in the same topic, and you can kind of pollinate, like you said. And then maybe you turn episodes later on, or transcripts, or edit, edited transcripts, or something. You turn it into some writing, or the idea for a mailing list or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think a, a podcast with another person, whether it's a co-host or a guest, is a really, really good starting point for somebody who is trying to like start to get off the hamster wheel, start to try to build some authority. Um, it's a very safe way to practice positioning because it's just a podcast. You know, you yeah. position the podcast instead of your whole business. Yeah, and, and you can reposition the podcast. You know, we've done that in a number of situations with, with mm. clients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fine. It's That's an easy thing to do. Easy fix. Yep. Cool. cool. All right. Get out there and podcast. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to wrap Whoa. on podcasting, but it does make sense. It touches on a lot of things. Funny. Yeah. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.